0: Hello listeners, welcome to Salon Radio. This is Heidi Russell, founder of International Women Artists Salon. And Salon Radio is a project of International Women Artists Salon in our fifth season. And it's our pleasure to be broadcasting from Funkadelic Studios here in New York City. Welcome again, listeners of the past and also new listeners. And uh, it's a pleasure to um, have some amazing guests today. And we have uh, an amazing documentary film, which we'll be talking about, um, called Miracle on 42nd Street. And we have uh, on interview today for that project, director Alice Elliott and producer and editor Lisa Shreve. Welcome, ladies.
1: Thank
2: you. Hello. Hi. Thanks a lot.
0: And uh, also later in the show, we have our Salon Solo radio feature guest, Heather Massey. Hi, Heather. Hello, and uh, um, we'll be talking about um, her theater work and uh, which will be coming up for festival time here which um, we're really excited to hear about and as always we're going to open up the show with our world bulletin What's Happening for Women Creatives Around the World and this particular bulletin was researched and edited by Barbara Sullivan What the Veil Reveals for Many Centuries Throughout cultures and associated almost exclusively with women, the veil has been seen and used as one of the most potent of symbols. From the hajib, the nun's habit, and the wedding veil, to Salome's dance and the veil dresses of the Fali's perjere. This ancient cloaking device may also have the greatest variety of symbolic meanings. Celebration and subservience, eroticism and chastity power and possession, mourning and magic, to name just a few. Today, the religious and political meanings ascribed to the Muslim's woman's veil, whether uh, whatever variety, are perhaps what first come to mind when we think of a veil. Now, many contemporary female musicians are using veils to make their own statements. In their famous pregnancy portrait, Beyonce's flowing green veil lends her a Madonna-esque look. That's the Virgin Mary, not the singer of Like a Virgin. <laughs> Other artists, such as Bat for Lashes and Banks, incorporate veils in their performances and videos to address and, dis- and dispute traditional female roles. However veiled or unveiled they may be, these women are being seen. And you can learn more about these female musicians take the veil at um, a Huffington Post uh, article, which will be posted on our fan page. And next up, first colonial witch execution in Salem, Massachusetts, has long been considered the center of colonial America's witch averse. And this Halloween, you'll find that town hosting its annual spellbound multitudes. But in fact, it was in the Connecticut colony in 1642 that laws were first passed many years before Massachusetts enacted similar measures, making witchcraft a capital offense. Halse Young of Windsor, Connecticut, holds the dubious distinction of having been the colony's first witch, quote-unquote, to be executed. She was hanged in 1647. By 1662, nine women and two of their husbands had been put to death. A total of 35 Connecticut citizens would be accused of witchcraft before the laws were rescinded in 1750. In 2016, two residents of Windsor founded an organization called Connecticut Witch Memorial. Memorial, which, quote quotes here means witch interrogations, trials, and colonial hangings. The group is dedicated to educating the public about Connecticut's witchcraft trial history and efforts to acknowledge the victims. Last February, some 370 years after the persecution and death of Alice Young, the Windsor Town Council finally and unanimously cleared her name. That gives me chills. Yeah, it's incredible, incredible what women creatives are doing to help right the wrongs of of (laughs) history as well. And finally, in raising LGBTQ awareness in Africa, uh, just a uh, a piece of information first before we talk about these two amazing women. In 38 of Africa's 54 countries, it's illegal to be gay. In several of, uh, of those countries, the crime of homosexuality carries the death penalty. A person who is gay, transgender, or otherwise LGBTQ may be verbally or physically attacked in public and can usually expect no help either from bystanders or from the police. One misperception behind this persecution is that homosexuality equals pedophilia. Some in authority perpetuate this myth for their own ends. And two African artivists, Katligo Kolayan Kasupal, a playwright from Botswana, who is also a transgender woman, and Ugandan Adong Judith, a straight playwright, director, and filmmaker, and they are working together to combat the pernicious fictions that foment homophob fom- homophil- excuse me, homo- f- homophobia. There we go. You, you don't want to say it. Uh, I don't <laughs> even want to say it's it. It's not there coming we out we of goes. your doesn't mouth. want to come out. Though by doing so, they put their liberty and indeed their lives at risk. The two met at a recent TED conference and have joined forces to spread a message of tolerance. Kadligo is the founding director of the Queer Shorts Showcase Festival, the only theater in Botswana that addresses LGBTQ issues. Adong writes pieces that present the LGBT community in an empathetic light as ordinary friends and neighbors. The women are part of a growing effort in Africa to, di- to dissipate the cloud of ignorance and fear that surrounds homosexuality on their home continent. So thank you so much to Barbara Sullivan for putting together this uh, amazing bulletin. And as you can hear, there's amazing work being done by women creatives around the world. And please find out more about these particular stories and more on our fan page, International Women Artists Salon, on Facebook and uh, speaking of amazing women creatives, um, we're going to jump right over to our special feature for this show with Malini St. McDonald presenting. Hello, Mani- Malini.
3: Hello, how are you?
0: I'm fabulous, although it seems that my um, my lips are trying to get in the way of, uh, <laughs> of my speaking a bit today, but uh, it's a pleasure to be here with you as always. Oh, always um, a pleasure. Malini is founder of theater beyond Broadway, and, uh, and helps promote women's work um, in many ways through uh, the theater. So welcome, and uh, look forward to having you present uh, Miracle on 42nd Street.
3: Oh, thank you. I'm, ex- I'm so excited, but f- our listeners know that whenever I'm on this podcast, I always say that, but it's true. I get very excited about talking about theater, talking about the arts, oh my goodness, talking about women creatives and artivists. What I'm really excited about today is talking to Alice and Lisa about their project as well as with Heather because it, it both projects are something I'm familiar with and a little bit in awe. So I am excited and looking forward to having a really um, great conversation with both of you. No pressure. So uh, <laughs> no pressure, Alice and Lisa, how are you?
1: Okay, I'm appreciating your awe. My awe?
3: I'm so excited. Okay, so I'm going to actually read a little bit about Manhattan. uh, Sorry, Miracle on 42nd Street, and then I'll read your bios, and we'll launch right into it. Miracle on 42nd Street is a documentary about affordable housing for artists, the transformation of Times Square and the Manhattan Plaza housing complex on West 42nd Street in New York City. Former residents include Alicia Keys, Larry David, Giancarlo Esposito, Donald Faison, Samuel L. Jackson, and Angela Lansbury, who are all in the film. And the film is narrated by Chas Palminteri, a native New Yorker himself from the Bronx. And Alice Elliott is the director. She is an Academy Award-nominated documentary director of The Collector of Bedford Street and a 2012 Guggenheim Fellow Award recipient. She directed the award-winning PBS documentary Body and Soul, Diana and Kathy. For Miracle on 42nd Street, she received a National Endowment for the Arts grant, which, hello, that is like a, that is a miracle. Th- and, <laughs> <laughs> and Lisa Shreve is an Emmy Award-winning and Oscar-nominated filmmaker. She has edited and produced over 100 television documentaries, news magazine segments, and narrative films. She has worked with such figures as Barbara Walters, Diane Diane Sawyer, Mike Wallace, Peter Jennings, and Michael Bay, among others. So I'm going to jump right into it. Those of us who know, or maybe don't know, I th- if you're from New York and an artist, then you're aware of Manhattan Plaza. Whether you know somebody or people who've, who live there, or you live there, or you're aware that it's one of the many artist colonies uh, and apartment housing that's in New York City. Um, and, but Manhattan Plaza was really redefined the neighborhood. So either of you, Lisa or Alice, just if you want to jump in and, and maybe tell us a little bit about the history and what made you to decide to do this documentary.
1: Well, I think uh, I was approached about doing it and by two women who were casting directors and they lived in California, but they were having lunch one day and they realized how important the, being able to live at Manhattan Plaza had been to their careers, even though they had both moved on to living in California. And uh, I was just, I, I've known about Manhattan Plaza since the day in 1974 3, 5, somewhere in there, <laughs> right. that I started walking over there for an appointment. I was a young actress, and I started walking over toward Manhattan Plaza, and I had an appointment, and I was walking on 43rd Street between 8th and 9th Avenue, and I didn't feel safe, and I <laughs> walked in the middle of the street because yep. I didn't feel safe on the sidewalk, and I thought, wait a minute, what are you doing? If you're an actress. You would have to come home late at night. How would you do that? And I thought, I can't do this. So I turned around, and I forfeited my apartment and my chance to have this amazing adventure of living in there because I was too scared. And I think Lisa should pick up the story because she was one of the brave ones. So, Lisa, tell your story.
2: Well, I had been living on the Bowery. So, for me, it was, a... <laughs> <laughs> it was, it was one terrible neighborhood to another, although I must say... The Bowery wasn't dangerous at the time I was there. It was, um, you know, drunken guys. Sometimes you would have somebody lying in front of your door in the morning and you literally couldn't get out of the building because they'd be passed out or possibly dead. That could happen, too. (laughs) Um, But but it it was pre-crack, and um, it became very dangerous after crack exploded on the scene. But really, we were not afraid. We had the Hells Angels in a building right mm-hmm. on the corner, mm-hmm. and so nobody really did anything in that neighborhood. And it was like having the mafia in your neighborhood. Plus, there was a fire department across the street. So it was actually not unsafe. I don't think we felt unsafe down there. So moving to Manhattan Plaza was, <laughs> was actually a step down, um, a much more dangerous neighborhood, much more dangerous, much more, you know, what was going on in the streets was... Yes. More threatening, um, but the security in the building was fantastic. I live on the 42nd floor. You just don't worry about anyone getting into your house. The streets are another story. Uh, I was working so hard in those days. I pretty much took a cab to work and a cab home most of the time. I wasn't really in the streets much or dealing with the streets. I was sort of sleeping here and mostly at work, so I didn't experience too much of the danger of having to walk from the subways and those kinds of things that a lot of people went through. People were mugged.
1: But, Lisa, you were really a pioneer. I mean, you
2: yes, took we on pioneers. the challenge
1: of living there. Yeah, yeah
2: we were pioneers. Um, it, it was
1: <laughs> – but, I mean, and you other can people – You I can see in the film what it was more, like. Yeah. Yeah, the, the because film Because we, we have, yeah, authentic footage from the time – and recently the HBO um, series The Deuce came yes. out, mm-hmm. and I don't know if people have been watching that, but I noticed in the opening uh, sequence that we actually share some of that archival footage uh, with The Deuce, that we, you know, that it's very authentic. That's what it was like.
3: Well, I remember growing up, because I'm I'm a native New Yorker, We we only went into Times Square to go to see shows, otherwise you just, my parents covered my eyes. It was very dangerous. <laughs> they, they we're getting off the 7 train, and then we're getting back on. Do not look at anybody. And I remember just, you know, it was prostitutes and hookers and people going to see Broadway. <laughs>
1: right. And one of our the people in our film, um, Gerald Schoenfeld, who um, was head of the Schubert organization, talks about it. He says that it was like a cesspool, that people would not come. They came to the theater, and they turned around and yes. went home. And so he said something simply had to be done, and that's where Manhattan Plaza kind of stepped in. Uh, It was a very big risk, if you can imagine, at that time, uh, to think that you could bring middle-class people into that area and that they would want to live there.
2: Well, that's why the actors ended up getting it, because middle-class people wouldn't come. They couldn't rent the building up to the population they thought they were building it for. Upper middle class people. Guess what? They didn't want to live in Hell's Kitchen. So, so they
1: um, yeah. So they discovered that actors are actually fit the low income profile perfectly. Um, mm. And we do all over the country even today. Um, actors and artists are um, eligible for um, the low income tax credit in housing. And so, um, artists they found have made really good tenants, and they really um, help. The economy of uh, any town, street, city that they move into, Um, they're active, they're part of their community. They, just like everybody else, they buy food, they drive cars, you know, so it's a very good investment to invest in artists.
3: When, what was the moment, I know you said many people were asking you to do the film, I mean, what really made it happen though? What made you say, okay, we if we don't do this, it, it may be lost? Because the truth is, nobody really talks about the history of the artists who built up that, that neighborhood. Because it's it's in like a red light district back in the 70s. So it's between Hell's Kitchen and Hell. So how did you know I better well, do this?
1: Yeah, for me, there were three things. Um, one, coming to the realization that I had been raised to think that artists were, and and not in a deliberate way, but in a societal way, I'd been raised to think that artists were parasites. And then I, because I've been an artist all my life, I realized that artists are a vital and valuable part of the community, and you must have artists. So to realize that this was a form, this film could be a form to explain why artists are so important. The second was that I, I was given the opportunity to work with someone of Lisa's caliber, that she's a you know, world-class editor, and that I would get the opportunity to interview these major, important people of our time, and that um, they were able to raise money right away. It was such a sensational idea that the first donor that they went to um, gave us enough to get started on the film.
3: How did the two of you meet? Well, I one think of the casting meeting. directors,
1: <laughs>
2: one of the women,
1: what? I said, I think at a meeting.
2: At a meeting, that's right. Um, um, Mary Jo Slater, who was the, one of the two yes. casting directors in L.A., um, it was Nancy Perkins was the other one. It was all their idea. Mary Jo came to New York and called a meeting with the two of us, sort of picked out the two of us to do it. And um, that's when we met. And the odd thing was that, we both had had Academy Award nominations in the same category in the same year and didn't know each other at the time to- until we met through Mary Jo. So it was kind of fun. In the short documentary category, we had each had um, a nomination. I, I had edited a, a nominated um, film and she had directed a nominated film in the same category in, what was it, 2002, I think. No, yeah, 2002. So we immediately had a little common, <laughs>
4: mm-hmm.
3: <laughs> common
2: bond through that, which was kind of funny.
3: Can you st- each separately talk a little bit about your experience actually working as women in, in that documentary system and in the film industry, coming from New York City and, and doing it in L.A. or elsewhere? Sure, I'll
1: jump in. That um, I've just found uh, doing documentary is kind of doing an end run around the whole business. Mm. That um, One of the things I love about documentary is I didn't have to ask permission. I didn't have to wait for somebody to give me, you know, uh, saying, oh, yes, your project is greenlit, that uh, I came into the business just when small digital cameras um, came out. And I could buy a camera, and I could get started the next day on filming something. And this is what's happened in the documentary business, and in, to some extent in the film business, too, is that you can go out, if you have a great story, you can tell it. When I, for my Academy Award-nominated film, I went to a Block Association meeting, and I said, I want to make this film, but I don't have a camera. And a woman in my, my, my Block Association stood up and said, I have a camera. And it just happened like that. And so, in terms of the whole business, um, I've been really, you know, uh, I've been just really fortunate. Um, but I don't, I don't put myself in that world, you know, in that sort of Hollywood, frantic, competitive world. That I'm really interested in social justice. I'm really interested in the power of media to change, to make change. And so, I'm not so interested in you know, stars and uh, all that other stuff, because to me that's not really what's going to last. What's going to last is how you affect people's lives.
3: What a breath of fresh air to say that. Thank you. Thank you for saying that because I think, all right, I don't think this, this has been my experience in talking with other artists, is that sometimes you just want to make art and you don't want the glitz. You just want to be able to create art and it be your platform for whatever you need to get off your chest, you know. And I'm assuming that's something you also teach at, at NYU, right? I'm sure you're instilling that in your students who are going out there to create.
1: Well, what's exciting is what, how you can influence the next generation of filmmakers to make people start thinking about ethics you have a responsibility to yourself, you have a responsibility to your subject, and you have a responsibility to your audience. And what do you actually want to put out in the world? Because there's a lot of sort of ethic neutral, shall I say, behavior, where it, you know, I'm an artist, it doesn't matter what I do, and I feel it does matter what you do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, What kind of world do you put up on the screen and what kind of values do you put out? And so, if anything, I, you know, I don't, a lot of my students never make another documentary. They didn't, nobody really comes to NYU to make documentaries, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> right. Um, but I like to surprise them. And, find, and I feel we teach documentary skills and documentary techniques. And for me, a big chunk of that is ethics. And just about who are you, what values do you live by, and how is that reflected in your work?
3: Lisa, what's your take on that as well? Especially since you work—you work in news, and in that world, how is that different or alike?
1: Well, I worked in news
2: because um, um, I graduated from NYU at a time when jobs were scarce, and you know, I ended up waitressing and working in a a commercial editing house, and then I got a job as a, a an assistant in a Corporate company, and then a recession hit, and they laid off everybody. And I was the first to go <laughs> because I was the newest. And I lucked into a job at ABC News 2020, just pure luck. Um, and it was it was really the best possible opportunity for me because they trained me in everything. You made these. It was a weekly show, so you made short films every week. You know, stuff had to be ready to air every week. So they were usually on maybe a month's schedule or something. We were cutting on film at that time. And it, you just learn everything. You learn how to pack information about a complex subject into a short um, film. Um, there were fantastic people working there at the time. They were trying to sort of develop this show. It was an open question, what was the show? So you had, if you had ideas, people listened was just the greatest training in the world. But I always loved movies. I considered myself so lucky to be there. I didn't grow up in a artistic um, scene. I didn't know anyone whose parents worked in the film business or anything. I didn't have any inside track, So I considered myself so fortunate to be in any end of it, journalism, news, whatever it was. But I certainly always have loved movies, would like to do more movies. And um, I, I think you can you can affect the world just as much with movies, if they I just want to do good work, either documentaries mm-hmm. or movies, anything that's good and the message is correct, and there's and you're bringing some beauty to the world. That's all. That's all I care about, either a documentary or a movie. There's, um, you know, wide open in both of them to, you know, yeah. really, <clears throat> really do, really reflect what you want to reflect on the world. That's great. Is that
3: what you're... That you that's <laughs> what I needed, Lisa. <laughs> okay. <that's> great. <laughs> We're going to take a quick uh, pause.
0: Yes, yes, eat. thank you, uh, ladies. This is uh, incredible to hear the journey and a little bit about your your experiences and um, how this uh, important documentary has been coming together and uh, what uh, impact it will have, hopefully, on communities around The United States, if not the world, and and how we honor and support artistry in our communities to help uh, create healthy communities, a balanced society, and uh, raising up humanity. So, thank you, ladies. And we're just going to take a quick sponsor break and be back talking with Lisa and Alice shortly. And we would like to, first off, our ongoing sponsor, like to thank Funkadelic Studios here on 40th Street, West 40th Street. And uh, Funkadelic is an amazing music studio. They provide affordable studios for musicians as well as other artists who need space. And uh, they rent equipment. They host uh, jams and uh, workshops. And they are here to provide a resource for musicians of every level. And we thank them for providing this amazing studio for us to produce Salon Radio and to be a great partner. It is founded by um, a fabulous woman, Dawn Orlando. And um, you can learn more about Funkadelic Studios on their website. So Funkadelic is F-U-N-K-A-D-E-L-I-C studios.com and if you're in New York City please come and, and check them out uh, whether using their services or coming to one of their events and we give a shout out to our engineer Jade Zabrick who is uh, an employee of Funkadelic but also an amazing Salon member and musician in her own right and uh, our second sponsor today uh, is Performances with Allison Charney and uh, her amazing series uh, promoting and featuring women and men in the classical music genre, providing them a way to present material before they go on, quote-unquote, the big stage, wherever that may be in the world. And they had their inaugural ninth season concert uh, uh, two weeks ago at their new venue, Merkin Concert Hall at Kaufman Music Center here in New York City. And uh, Merkin Concert Hall is an amazing venue, and uh, also they provide many educational opportunities for young musicians uh, all the way up through, providing uh, great stage opportunities for every level of classical and opera music. So we thank them for their sponsorship, and we look forward to their next concert in November 27th. And now I'm going to turn it back over to Malini. Hi there, I'm back.
3: So um, I have a couple of more questions for you ladies. Uh, The first one is, since this is a question we ask all our presenters, I'm sorry, our guests, and that is, as women artists in this world, how is there a specific woman who artist who has been your idol someone you've looked up to someone you've collaborated with uh just so we can remind each other that we don't have to create on our own and that there's a community and we could reach out to them so is there somebody when you were starting out that you really looked up to
1: Uh, mm. Lisa, do you want to go or do you want me to You've jump You got in? me. I have
2: to think about that. Um, you caught me.
1: Uh, Ooh, sorry. I have a couple on the tip of my tongue. Um, that I have my aspirational person, which is Agnes Varda. <laughs> uh, she's an incredible French documentary filmmaker. And just she has a film also at Doc NYC, the festival that Miracle on 42nd Street um, is in. And uh, so I jokingly said to my staff, I said, gee, I think I'm going to be the oldest person at Doc NYC. And my (laughs) staff very cheerfully said, no, Alice, don't worry. Agnes Fart is 91. (laughs) I said, oh, thank you. That really does inspire me. And then when I just started out in film, because I made a transition from being an actress to a filmmaker. And of course, I had no idea what the transition would be like. But um, a woman named Cynthia Wade um, gave me many opportunities. She's actually younger than I am quite a bit, and, um, but very well trained in documentary filmmakers. So she was like a teacher and a mentor to me. And I think it's always good to remember that your teachers and mentors don't always have to be people that are older than you. They can often mm-hmm. be people your own age or people younger. And she recently won an Academy Award for her film Free Health. And um, I just hold her in a very high regard because of her ability to um, embrace the difficult in life, um, that she really, you know, takes difficult subjects and sees them through. And then I have another person um, who is Terry Lawler, who is head of New York Women in Film and Television, which if your listeners don't know about New York Women in Film and Television, mm-hmm. it's just a spectacular organization that mentors women that provides um, many, many, many opportunities. I speak of it as my film school Mm -hmm. that um, I joined as an actress and then I attended almost every event they offered, (laughs) um, night after night learning and participating and meeting my peers and Um, making this transition from being an actress to a filmmaker. And Terry was head of New York Women in Film and Television, and I got to serve on the board of New York Women in Film and Television, and now I serve on the advisory board. Um, So uh, she is an incredible model of generosity, patience, kindness, and um, it's just been a wonderful experience. friendship relationship over the last 20 years so those are three people that I think of um, for three different reasons
3: that's great and you're an inspiration how about you Lisa
2: well first of all Alice um, (laughs) (laughs) has been we've been with this uh, project on and off for many years we've weathered um, a lot of storms you know independent filmmaking is a little bit analogous to war <laughs>
1: yeah, and literally hurricane candy <laughs> yeah, hurricane, um, that, that was just one of the storms um we
2: have um she, she's a great person to be at, in the trenches with she's just been amazing um and i ha- you know i have to say one person whose career i'd love to have is felma shoemaker i don't know her i've met her once briefly but um I, when i was at nyu i had martin scorsese for a teacher And we heard about her. Uh, You know, she's just sort of been in my psyche ever since I was at film school. And what a career, just being connected to a director like that and doing every film that he does. Must be really, really wonderful, lovely career. Um, And there were two different women who I worked with more than anyone. The first one was at, um, at ABC 2020. Her name was Janice Tomlin. She was sort of the superstar producer there. At the time, then we did one, one film after another together, and we did the first hour that 2020 aired as a whole hour on one subject <clears throat> at 2020. And from then, I, from there, I went off into our documentaries from segments. And um, the other one was Lisa Jackson, who I worked with for many years as a freelancer after ABC um, at Linda Ellerby's company, Lucky Duck. We did many films together. Really fascinating subjects, and she's <clears throat> she's a force of nature. Um, both of them just sort of wanted to work only with me for a long period of time when those partnership's lasted. And it's, I, I like working that way. It's a great way to work where you just sort of understand that the next one that comes along, you're doing it with them, and um, you, it's good that way because you develop ways of working together and you develop a shorthand and um, a sort of an understanding of how you're going to do things and when you start over again every time with different people um you know that's fine but it's not as deep a way of working i think you turn out better films maybe that way and i just appreciate both of them for working with me all those years and learned so much from both of them
3: listening to the both of you i almost wish i'm, I'm sorry we couldn't all be in the same room at the same time because I just think both of you are really inspirational, and I think you two are inspiring so many young women, filmmakers, artists who who need this. We need these strong women role models right now. I'm explaining how, or not even explaining, sharing how to... Survive in this industry. I think it's so important. So I just want to thank both of you for just, just showing up for the rest of us, and and I can't wait to meet you because it's going to happen, and just yes, <laughs> my it's it's going to happen November 11th. <laughs> That's right. So, so my final question, ladies, is you know what's your your advice, or do you have any anecdotes that you can share with? the coming generations of lady filmmakers or artists?
1: Well, I would say be persistent. Just keep putting one foot in front of the other. There's a big emphasis today on, you know, splash, you know, making a big thing. And I have seen how the people who consistently show up, do the work, are the, are, are the people who feel good about themselves and do create good work. So I think there's something to be said for persistence. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going
2: to say. There it is. It
3: took <laughs> <a lot> of, <laughs> See why it took we work well
2: together? <laughs> it took a lot of resistance to get this film done. And, um, you know, Alice really has it. She just hangs in there till it's done. And um, that's... I think that's really the key. If you don't give up, you will succeed. <laughs> you just can never give up.
3: Well, I have, a ha- I have a hashtag for you. Persistence to resistance. Does that make sense? <laughs> okay, yes. it does, right? I, yes. just, I, ha- I had a moment. <laughs> um, Alice and Lisa, thank you so much for your time and for sh- uh, spending uh, the morning with us. And listeners... The Miracle on 42nd Street uh, will have its screening on November 11th at 1:30 p.m. at the SVA Theater which is located on 209 East 23rd Street kind of sort of no, 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 I'm sorry it's, no, 330.
1: 30. it's 333 It's 333 West 23rd.
3: Look at that. The Was that did I, I get the address for SVA the school? Location. I did.
1: Sorry, yeah. Yeah.
3: Thanks ladies. Sorry. I, guys, I just gave the, uh, the address to the school. So if you go to the school, no right. one will be there. 333 West 23rd. That is across the street from uh, the Hotel Chelsea. It's between
1: right. 8th and, and people, 9th Avenue. Yes. Yeah, people may want to um, just look for it through DOC NYC, which is the largest documentary festival in the United States, and it's happening in New York from the 9th, 9th to the 16th of November.
2: it's docnyc.net if they want to go online and get tickets
3: or you can visit www.miracle on 42ndstreet.org thank you again and I'm going to turn it over to Heidi thank you Malini thank
0: you very very much thank you so much Lisa and Alice it's been a pleasure to have you on Salon Radio today and hopefully this is just the beginning of our collaboration And uh, looking forward to seeing the premiere. And um, if there's any other information you'd like us to share, we will certainly put it on our fan page, International Women Artists Salon. And uh, we wish you um, great success with this documentary and all your uh, future work.
3: Thank Thank you you so much.
0: And uh, we'll see you at the premiere. We'll see you at
3: the screening. Yes. We'll
0: see you there. Take care.
1: Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
0: And uh, now we're going to uh, give our Salonista and Salon Bulletin uh, before we head into our solo feature um, with Heather Massey. So uh, we have over 3,000 women creatives connected around the world. And uh, it's just amazing the work that they're doing, as you're hearing on the radio show today, But um, you can follow us on International Women Artists Salon fan page on Facebook um, and learn more about uh, some of the events and happenings and fundraisers and social causes um, that these amazing Salonistas are doing around the world. And here's just a snippet of what's happening coming up this this coming week, actually. On Saturday, November 4th at 6.30 p.m., our partner organization, Poets House, presents a reading to benefit Puerto Rican relief efforts with a lineup of poets from Puerto Rico, the De diaspora, and beyond. And they're um, going to uh, have a number of poets. Gosh, I see a list here of at least uh, twenty, and uh, men and women. And you can learn more um, by sending info. Um Email to poets Rico at gmail.com. And the event is taking place at the Poets House, which is uh, Ten River Terrace here in New York City. And you can also learn more at ww.cd, and paul paul dot org. And that uh, represents com- Commodore's Socials de Puerto Rico and uh, the proceeds for, from this event will go to benefit their relief efforts thank you to Poets House for doing this uh, amazing event to help those in need our fellow citizens and creatives and uh, also coming up next week uh, November 8th on Wednesday 7 to 8 p.m. Central Time on Norfolk Campus Northeast Community College is presenting writer Sarah McKinstry Brown. And this is part of their Visiting Writers series. And um, it's uh, an amazing series um, that uh, you can learn more about um, on their website. Um, and I'm just looking where I put that website. Um, it, uh I don't have it, but I'm going to post it on our fan page so that we have it. So it's Northeast Community College Visiting Writers Series. And Sarah McKinstry Brown uh, is the winner of two Nebraska Book Awards and uh, author of Cradling Monsoons and uh, has been published everywhere from West Virginia's standardized tests to literary journals such as Rattle, Green Mountain Review, and more, and she's a proud founder, curator, and host of feedback at K-A-N-E-K-O, an interactive literary reading series, and learn more about her at hellosm, as a Mary, B as boy dot com. And then uh, also, if you'd like to learn how to watercolor paint, um, there is an opportunity for a, a workshop. Coming up on November 12th, which is a Sunday, at the Bot Shop, studio and store, and that's B as in boy, O-T-T, shop with two Ps, and that's in Mamaroneck, New York, on East Boston Post Road, and uh, they have um, topics uh, covering illustration and drawing techniques, understanding the use of water as a medium, and coloring techniques, And it's a two-hour session from 1 to 3. And um, it's on a Sunday, Uh, just $15 to help cover the costs of the materials. And uh, we encourage you to RSVP. uh, And uh, let's see here. You can go directly to the bot shop uh, website.com. And you can learn more about this workshop and other happenings on our fan page, International Women Artists Salon, and also just a reminder that our monthly series, Salon Lounge at Dixon Place, happens on the third Saturday of every month, 7.30 to 8.30, free to the public, providing uh, an amazing showcase of women's artistry, uh, a mixed multidisciplinary showcase from literature to film, to theater, visual art, and more, and we thank Dixon Place for their partnership. So now I'm going to turn it over to Malini again to present our Salon solo radio feature artist.
3: Hi, and we are back. And those of you who know me or listen know that I love a solo show. I think they are difficult to do and that the artist who chooses to tell their story is stepping into their own truth, whether it's it's autobiographical or somebody else's. And Heather Massey is with us today. Hi, Heather. Hello, Malini. I'm glad to be here with you and Heidi. Oh, <laughs> this is going to be so great. And I, I, I am not going to get on my my platform, <laughs> but I'm excited to talk about you and this show that you're doing, your solo show, the life, Heidi, the life and inventions of Heidi Lamar. So I'm going to just read about you okay. for a moment. <laughs> Heather Massey is the New York City writer, producer and performer of the award-winning internationally acclaimed solo play "Hetty: The Life and Inventions of Hetty Lamar," having the youthful dreams of becoming an astronaut, Heather now marries her interests in science and art in the person of actress inventor Hetty Lamar. Hetty The Life and Inventions of Hetty Lamar explores the life, inventions, and the person of Hetty Lamar, Viennese-born Hollywood film star of the nineteen thirties to nineteen f- fifties. Known as the most beautiful woman in the world, Hetty Lamar stored away knowledge of munitions while married to Austrian arms dealer Fritz Mandel. She employed this knowledge to support the US Navy's war effort during WW2 or World War II by inventing the secret communication system with composer George Antheil. Uh, and-tile, actually. And-tile. Antile, actually, mm-hmm. Antile, to make torpedoes more accurate. Also referred to as frequency hopping or spread spectrum technology. Her invention is used today in cell phones, Wi-Fi, CDMA, GPS, Bluetooth, and a myriad of other wireless systems. Listeners, this woman is fascinating, and Heather is fascinating, too, and I want—I can't wait. So please tell me, how did you stumble on Hedy? Well I was looking for a woman in science to feature
4: in a solo play and Hetty ended up being in the mix of ideas and uh, she ended up being the perfect subject for me for my first solo show because well I'm an actress with an interest in science and she was an actress with an interest interest in invention it's what she liked to do in her spare time so as I was thinking of a of a subject that would work in festivals she's very dynamic her story is intriguing and um, glamorous as well as intelligent <laughs> yeah, intelligence mixed in there it's a it's a great mix for an interesting
3: play she was also beautiful, and you're beautiful. I mean, it's l- a perfect <laughs> combination. I try.
4: She was known as the most beautiful woman in the world, so, you know, <laughs> I do my best. <laughs> I
3: just, so, did you know about her when you had aspirations of being an astronaut? Absolutely not. I did not
4: know about her until uh, a couple years ago. Uh, well, actually, a few years ago, to 2013. Um So actually, when I was in third grade, I decided I wanted to be an astronaut or an inventor. Mm. And really, the role models I had, say, for being an inventor were were all men, mainly Thomas Edison, Mm because that's who we studied that year in school. (laughs) That's (laughs) That's why I wanted to be an inventor. So part of my mission in producing and performing and writing the show is to... Work to make Hedy's name synonymous with intelligent women and invention and ingenuity and to place her as a role model for young women interested in science and technology in any of the STEM fields.
3: And she had an interesting history herself, being a movie star yes. and then being an inventor and scientist. I mean, she she grew up, became... Famous uh, uh, household mm-hmm. name, mm-hmm. um in, in a time the '30s through '50s where it was, it's not easy to be a, f- a woman artist and, and right, an actress. Right, right. So, what a dichotomy is! I, I found yeah. an interview with her um, from 1969. Woody Allen. Oh, that one's <laughs> that, <laughs> that one's fun. Yeah, little Leslie Uggams <laughs> and um yeah. um, uh, there was Moms yeah. the and Yeah, it was like the weirdest. I shouldn't say weirdest. Let me rephrase <laughs> that. It was an interesting group of mm-hmm. people yeah. on the stage. Yeah. And the men were completely blindsided and by her. Oh, uh,
5: Woody
4: was like just drooling on the table. Oh my goodness. <laughs> he was uh, like almost literally drooling. <laughs> there was no shame around it.
3: But she just had this this stillness, this class, and she was wearing this great dress, mm-hmm. impeccable. And I thought that's such an interesting characteristic to t- to um tie into and tap into i should mm-hmm. say when you're an actress because as actors we always feel like we need to emote but there's something in that stillness and i think it's that stillness that must have allowed her to be able to almost have another life
4: well she had I mean many lives and parts of her life were very segmented Um lot of things she had to leave behind she learned to um like I said segment her life she was she was Jewish of Jewish heritage Mm -hmm. in Austria she was born in 1914 and she left in 1937 and being Jewish at that time was not (laughs) not a a a safe thing to mm -hmm. be and also once she got to Hollywood um Louis B. Mayer was her boss, MGM, and he did not allow his players to speak about religion. So she cut that part out of her life. Um, so as to, as to how that relates to poise, I, I mean, she was able to focus in, in yeah. a way that um, perhaps not everyone is able to, and that's how she was able to focus in her free time on interests that appealed to her, such as inventing. And... She learned at a very young age how to think critically, how to think about how mechanical systems worked, so that when she was married to Fritz Mondel, the, the fourth leading arms munitions dealer in the world at the time, that, uh, she absorbed a lot of knowledge from dinner parties. They, you know, of course, wouldn't have yes. thought that she understood what they were saying, but she did. And once she got to the United States in 1937 with the, you know, the heightening of strains in world relations and the impending war, she became very concerned about especially children who are being killed by torpedoes while being shipped to safety. And so she started thinking about what she could do to support the Allied forces and her new country, and she focused on torpedoes. And she brought in her collaborator, George Antile, who um, ironically was an avant-garde composer. Hmm. And uh, together they worked on her ideas to figure out a way to implement them. And the way that worked was (laughs) because... One of George's most famous works um, is called Ballet Mécanique, which he composed to go with a short film. And uh, it synchronizes 16-player pianos. Uh, Yes. Wow. (laughs) And, well, it was hard for him to synchronize them at that time. He never could find a way to do it. Now it's possible. Um, So he did it with a lesser number of of player pianos but it had sirens and bells and gongs and air yeah airplane propellers all kinds of crazy stuff and it premiered in paris and then at carnegie hall and it was this concept of player pianos that they used because they wanted to make the um, method of communication between the torpedo and the launching vessel secure so that it couldn't be intercepted so to do that they used radio signals but they jumped from one signal to another very rapidly and it's called frequency hopping and so that the torpedo and the launching vessel would be synchronized they basically put like a a tiny little piano roll telling that identical ones in each of the devices and that way they would jump frequencies at the exact same time yeah
3: all right I just got like full of oh my goodness that just shows how important the arts are
5: Right. And but <laughs> unfortunately, and the, they
4: gave this patent, which I can't remember how many billions of dollars it would be worth now, like $330 billion, I think is what a recent documentary is stating. And um, they gave it to the US Navy, but the Navy shelved it. Partly, I think, out of pride male pride course, yes. <laughs> oh well a Hollywood star and a composer really what do they think they're doing you need to go out and sell war bonds which Hetty did and she was smart about that too she sold nearly 25 million dollars in bonds wow. herself so she you know she dealt with this situation she was in and she she made the best of it but um the Navy then Did employ her patent in the late 50s for a sauna buoy system for detecting submarines? And then in 1962, after the patent had expired, they used it during the Cuban Missile Crisis. They actually used it in torpedoes and it helped to avert the crisis. Um, And then the patent was declassified in 1985 and it's been being used in all those things you listed Mm -hmm. cell phones,
3: GPS, Wi Fi. So I know that you've been traveling this show, and I I, I have the list of awards. So I'm not going to go through it since w- uh, we don't have time because <laughs> it's really impressive. How has this story? How's how has it worked in other places besides stateside? Because you've gone across the pond. I've you've gone yeah. with the show.
4: I've been in Ireland, Ireland, in Dublin and Galway. I was just in Zimbabwe in Bulawayo, yeah. and then in Cape Town. Um, most recently at the Cape Town Science Centre in South Africa, and it's been universally well received. And it also has appeal to a very wide range of ages. Young women, especially young girls, have been some of my favorite audience members. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just and I interact with the audience, so I speak directly to them, so I can see see what they're thinking, and. Um, and also, all the way up to I'm going to be doing some some work with um, an NPR station and the Department of Aging in Pennsylvania for senior centers. That's great. So it sh- well because a lot of people, um, older um, Americans, would have seen her films in their first runs. So in that case, they have this knowledge about her of her film career, but not necessarily about her inventions. People just didn't know about that. Hetty did not get recognition. For this 1942 patent until 1997.
3: Wow, wow that's a long time. That's 50 yeah, five very years. long
4: time. Well, her response when she got the call from the Electronic Frontier Foundation was, "It's about time." <laughs> yeah, yeah it well, it's about time. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> oh, thank you. So yeah. she
0: got to s- she got to see that happen.
4: Right, right. Um, and she sent her son Anthony to receive the award, which wow. he did. Yeah.
3: That's that's thrilling. And she we lost. She passed in 2000. 2000 January yeah, 19th. 19th. So, how do you identify with her? Like, how? What's your um, your thread? Be I I, f- I mean, just listening to you, mm-hmm. don't you feel it, Heidi? Mm-hmm. There's an artist definitely within you. I mean, it's the only way you could so eloquently tell this story. It's not an easy story unless you are a person. Who is a scientist? And I'm not saying that you have to be a scientist to tell the story, but I'm just saying the way you you have a connection to it,
4: right? Well, the passion for it definitely helps. Um, I I waited a very long time to find a, a way to bring science back into my life, and um, hmm. I don't know. She may have felt that way too, because I I mean, there was a hmm. long time between she when she was young, learning things from her father, learning how to think critically. Um, that uh, then she came back to it and made these inventions. Of course, she was thinking all the time about inventions, but um, the major contribution happened in, in 1942 with the patent. So in um, that way, I kind of, now that I'm thinking about yeah. it, you're posing the question, um, this is me coming back to it, and that was her really implementing everything that she knew to do. Uh, the, the thing that she felt was most important in her, li- in her life, I feel that she thought that this patent and these inventions were more important than her acting work. But she wasn't given recognition for them. And that at a certain point, um, as a woman in the industry, she felt kind of thrown away by the industry because she wasn't as beautiful as she was. And you can't uphold the standard of being the most beautiful woman in the world. And that's difficult. So she kept to herself a lot in her later life um do you have
5: a little piece that you want to read oh my goodness um let me think
3: there's no pressure all oh right I'm <laughs> d- uh, we're, uh, yeah, we're yeah, enjoying yeah. listening to you so we're kind of like oh <laughs> right
4: well uh let me let me switch my mind over to a performance here not be um, an actress not yes. be an actress You're not be an actress okay
5: so. Well, I understand. It is you who have summoned me. And judging by the moment that you chose, you want to know how a girl like me could create an invention like the secret communication system? Oh, I'm so glad that this is what you want to know. I must confess, the worst questions that I get uh, how many men have loved you, Miss Lamar? What a man was the greatest lover? That kind of thing. No, I've never engaged in this kind of smut-seeking curiosity, and I will not do so now. Hmm, but as to your question, I shall not disappoint. Oh, there we Thank go. you <laughs> so much. That was very short. <gasps> no, that uh, was great. Oh, that's brilliant.
3: Thank you.
0: Wait so okay. to see the whole show.
3: I, um, <laughs> <laughs> can you do the whole show now? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah. thank you. I, I mean, yeah. I, I, it's really really touching and and I could see it. I can she would be so proud to have you as her conduit telling her story. I, I really mean so. that, Heather. That's
4: that, that's m- that's my hope. You know, I'm working so hard to honor her and I'm hoping I'm doing it in a way that she would appreciate.
3: Oh, I think she would. I think just th- I d- I don't even need know what more to to add to that because she would be she would be thank you thank so you and
4: and and to say also um well i obviously i would love for as many people to see my show as possible but also sort of in a uh, a wider venue so that people know that there is a documentary that's going to be released in November um, called Bombshell the Hedy Lamarr story it's going to be released theatrically and then it will be on PBS American Masters in the spring directed by Alex Dean a really dynamic wonderful woman and um, it's executive produced by Susan Sarandon and uh, supported by the Sloan Foundation
0: Oh, I'm looking forward to that. Absolutely. Oh, I, love that. I love More too. powerful yeah. women um, bringing forth the stories of the history of um, women mm-hmm. creatives. Mm-hmm.
3: Yes, yes. So you're off to you're back from Cape Town. So back wh- from Cape Town. <laughs> where are you? Where are you next? Where I'm headed so give next. give you a little shout out. Oh yeah,
4: yeah. Where I'm headed next is the Charm City Fringe Festival in downtown Baltimore. It's going to be at the Downtown Cultural Arts Center this November 9th through twelfth. And let's see. You can get information at CharmCityFringe.com or at heathermassey.com. That's my website, heathermassey, M-A-S-S-I-E.com. And, yes, there's info there on all of my upcoming productions. You can also donate to the cause. It's very expensive to create art. And uh, there's a way to donate um, and get a tax deduction, 100% tax deduction through Fractured Atlas for my for my show. And um, yeah, then I'm I'm also gonna be performing on the Intrepid, the USS Intrepid Sierra and Space Museum Mm -hmm. for their Goals for Girls program, which is, it starts with eighth and ninth grade girls encouraging them in STEM fields. And I'm gonna be performing for them, so that's very exciting. Um, I'm going to return to the Sarasolo Festival in Sarasota at the beginning of the year. Um, I should be having some Performances for 4th to 8th grade girls at the Whitaker Science, uh, sorry, the Whitaker Center for Science and Art in Pennsylvania, so that's very exciting. Um, I'll be at Millersville University in April, and InspireFest in Dublin, Ireland next June, which is a conference for science, technology, design, and art. And all kinds of other uh, irons in the fire. Anywhere anybody wants me to go, you can contact me through the website, um, heathermassy.com.
3: Yeah, because Heather's Heather's schedule is quite open. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> no, it's
4: well, great. I, Call I her. Have, I have a puzzle to put together for next year, so it's that's very great. exciting. And
0: yeah, that's Thank very you. very exciting in, indeed. Thank you, Malini. And uh, I just wanted to mention and in, in getting to know Heather a little bit last week when we first met. You mentioned that you you actually give uh, um, lectures and and you participate on panels as well, correct? Or Mm -hmm. you're hoping to? Yes, yes. Well, I mean, a lot of times, especially after the
4: show, I do talkbacks and um, panels at times. And uh, I'm working on a lecture for that's what I'm going to be doing with – WITF NPR in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and the Department of Aging for their program Mind Matters. It's a lecture series for senior centers, oh, so yes. Fantastic. And also, in terms of our meeting, I want to say also, want to honor Valerie David and her show, The Pink Hulk. Yes. She's a fellow mm-hmm. um, solo performer who's been on this show, and she is also going to be at Charm City Fringe on the same dates, November 9th through 12th um she is a two-time cancer survivor and it's her sassy story of how she um battled love cancer her. um admits to her love adventures and it's a definite must-see so if anyone is in baltimore to see her as well
0: uh, she's valerie's great yes yes and valerie's she great. her
4: website is pinkhulkplay.com.
0: i believe i, I, I believe so, so. yes <laughs> yes thanks for giving Thank the shout you, out Heather. to, yeah. to valerie as well and uh Thank you to Lisa Shreve and Alice Elliott for informing us about The Miracle on 42nd Street, the documentary about Manhattan Plaza, affordable housing for artists with a long history here in New York City. And thank you to Heather Massey for being here and uh, talking about her amazing work um, and uh, highlighting the life of Hetty. Lamar and just an amazing oh gosh I just always feel so excited and um, inspired um, with our our shows here and talking to these amazing women creatives and you can learn more about all of these artists on our Facebook fan page International Women Artists Salon and um, continue to come back to our podcast weekly on Podbean. That's as in beanstalk. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So we're going to be growing into the universe uh, on podbean.com. So salonradio.podbean.com. And uh, we'll have weekly releases on Wednesdays, and we're in the process of uploading our 250-plus show archive as well to, to continue to get amazing inspiration and find collaborators and uh, resource information through these uh, amazing interviews over the past five years. We're also on Twitter and Instagram with the, with the tag at Women Art Salon. And you can email us anytime at Salon at gmail.com. If you'd like to join us, partner with us, sponsor us collaborate with us in any way and let us know what's happening for women creatives in your community in your area of the world thank you for being with us today on salon radio take care have a great week in the arts